Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. This episode is called Let the Party Begin, and we will review highlights from each opening day from 1896 to 1919, a period during which the hoopla surrounding opening day in Cincinnati took on a party flavor until World War I arrived, and we all know opening day parties are now a hallmark of our special holiday. So without further ado, let's start our journey with 1896. I call this a year to honor the legend. On April 13, 1896, Cincinnati, along with several other cities, hosted a tribute game to honor the passing of Harry Wright. Wright was recognized as the father of professional baseball at the time of his death. The regular season opener took place three days later. In addition to the trolley car parade introduced a year earlier, the Reds gave away gender-specific souvenirs to all patrons. As the gates opened, every man and boy was given a rooter's button, and every woman and girl was given a rudimentary photograph of the 1869 Red Stockings. It was the first time the Reds promoted the game with a giveaway, a practice that is commonplace throughout professional baseball today, but not on opening day in Cincinnati. There's no need for a giveaway to sell tickets today. The fans were also treated to a 90-minute pregame concert by Weber's Prize Band of America. The Morning Enquirer reminded its readers of the importance of baseball on the nation's calendar. Quote, Play ball! The most welcome words in the empire's vocabulary will tickle the ears of thousands of enthusiasts this afternoon. In six of the 12 most popular and most important commercial cities in America, these two words will be followed by a burst of cheers, and the great championship baseball season will be started. Yes, today is a day of all days in the estimation of the followers of America's national sport. Christmas, New Year's, and even Fourth of July are second considerations in the minds of real enthusiasts when the opening of the season is mentioned. Unquote. After the now customary parade and pregame concert, a monkey named Mose came on the field dressed in a costume that resembled the Reds' new uniforms, and each of the players petted him before the game for good luck. The team adopted Mose as its first mascot. Mayor Caldwell returned and was given the honor of again throwing the first pitch. After gathering the players and giving a short speech from the grandstand, Caldwell decided to throw the ball to the umpire instead of handing it to him as he had in 1895. The decision to throw it was a bad one as he proceeded to make the first wild pitch in opening day history. His toss in the grandstand went clear over the head of the umpire. Let's move to 1897. The title for this little chapter is Where's the Mayor? Even with threatening clouds and damp winds curtailing attendance, a large sprinkling of new Easter hats were conspicuous in the 1897 crowd of more than 11,000 fans, including the ladies who turned out in, quote, goodly numbers, unquote. The fans were treated to a 10-inning come-from-behind victory over the Chicago Colts. They didn't adopt the name Cubs until years later. As in previous years, both teams took part in a pregame trolley car parade through downtown, followed by a light lunch at the Gibson House. The parade was scheduled to proceed along the main streets of downtown. 
And it did. But Red's Captain Ewing persuaded the organizers to include Eastern Avenue on the route, close to his boyhood home. The Reds also introduced a new official scorecard for the occasion that was described as a work of art. It featured pictures of every member of the team, the official scorers of the game, and club officials. Another new development was a team's announcement that bicycles could be checked inside the grounds and that a club official would keep an eye on the, quote, wheels of patrons. Now, the biggest news out of this opening day concerned the Master of Ceremonies, again Mayor Caldwell. As had become the custom, there was a pregame concert. But after that, the Mayor was expected to address both teams' players in the grandstand box and then make the first pitch shortly after 3 o'clock p.m. However, Caldwell had not arrived by the appointed hour and the umpire and the players waited impatiently for several minutes. Exasperated, umpire Jack Sheridan, clad in his familiar blue uniform, walked to home plate and delivered the first pitch himself. This is the only time we believe in Red's history that an umpire was accorded the privilege of a first pitch. Albeit accidentally in this case. The paper noted that, quote, Weber's band subsided with a melodious sigh, and without more ado, the season of 1897 on the local grounds was begun, period, unquote. Okay, we moved to 1898, and we call this Talk of War. The battleship USS Maine had inexplicably exploded in the harbor at Havana, Cuba, in February 1898. So there was talk of war when the season began on April 15. The talk of war, however, did not dampen enthusiasm for opening day. Again, let's quote the Enquirer. No other day in the year do as many people of this great and glorious country scan the weather predictions more closely than they do on the day before the opening of the baseball championship season. Hundreds of bedroom curtains will be anxiously drawn aside this morning, and three of the most populous and important cities of the United States will await the game. If sunshine and fair weather promise greets the eyes of the watchers, there will be joy over the land. If rain or dark and gloomy weather then sorrow will be the portion of the vast majority of the population of all three big cities and their contiguous boundaries, unquote. At 9 o'clock a.m. that morning, the two finest palace electric cars of the Consolidated Street Railroad Company's service left the big barn in Brighton, a suburb of Cincinnati at the time. One stopped in front of League Park to pick up the Reds, and the other traveled to the Gibson House to collect the Cleveland players. An hour later, the two Palace cars were joined at Fountain Square by another car containing the members of Weber's band. The three cars then left Fountain Square and toured the city streets, which were lined with thousands of spectators before returning the players to the Gibson House for lunch. After the gates opened at 12.30, the eventual crowd of 10,000 people began to fill the park in anticipation of another concert by Weber's band, and after the concert, new mayor Gustav Taffel, quote, deftly handled his opening remarks and tossed out the first pitch, unquote. Now, instead of throwing the ball to one of the two umpires, and a new league rule required two umpires instead of one, Taffel chose to throw it to first baseman Harry Vaughn. The Reds notably beat Cleveland pitcher Cy Young that afternoon. Young went on to become the winningest pitcher in baseball history, and he is the inspiration for baseball's coveted pitching award 
the Cy Young Award awarded to the pitcher who the writers believe is the best pitcher in every major league season. The Enquirer noted that the fans consisted of all kinds and degrees of people, including ladies and gentlemen of what is known as the better class. The paper complimented the, quote, fair ones, unquote, who were, quote, gorgeous with the colors of spring and were the most interesting part of the picture, unquote. Let's move on to 1899. We'll call this the year of the uniform gaffe. Home teams in those days were always required to wear white uniforms, but circumstances forced the Reds to play with blue shirts and white trousers because they were the only uniforms available to the team. Captain Ewing had sent the white uniforms back to the manufacturer a week before the season because they did not conform to the sample provided to the club. The manufacturer decided to send the correct uniforms by freight rather than by express delivery, and the new uniforms did not arrive until April 16, one day too late. Nevertheless, a forecast of cold temperatures and a potential for snow cut down on the number of fans who came out to view the trolley parade. The fans were not alone in having to contend with the chilly blast that came out of the north. The Reds players, who had spent spring training in balmy Georgia for the first time, shivered along with the fans. Weber's band again treated the ballpark crowd to a 60-minute concert of popular airs. Mayor Taffel made the customary address before the game, wishing both teams luck in the upcoming season, and he threw the first pitch to Ewing. The Enquirer praised the turnout despite the dismal weather forecast. Quote, 9,148 people in overcoat weather is a championship opening worthy of even such a great baseball city as Cincinnati. The shivering enthusiasts who filled all the stands and swarmed out on the field in large numbers stamped their feet to keep warm and rooted with might and main for Ewing's men to get off in the lead, but their rooting was all for naught, period, unquote. Until the bad weather started rolling in, the Reds had their largest advanced sale of tickets for the opening game in history, but the actual game day attendance was the worst since 1894. Now, it's worth noting that as the Reds' popularity grew, so-called Rooters clubs began to spring up in Cincinnati and the surrounding areas that would later become the tally-ho parties. On this particular day, 150 members of the Wilmington Rooters from Clinton County, Ohio, it's about 75 miles north of Cincinnati, attended the opener wearing white string ties with large black letters announcing, quote, Wilmington Rooters, unquote, on one side of the tie and, quote, Reds to win, unquote, on the other. One of the Rooters' neckties was presented to the chief of ballpark police, Happy Sam Saffin, and the Enquirer predicted that the other Rooters' groups would adopt similar neckties. The paper lastly noted that there were a good many Pittsburgh Rooters scattered about in the grandstand. Let's go to 1900, the dawn of a new century, and we call this year playing hooky. After proclaiming the greatest of outdoor sports starts today, the Morning Enquirer on April 19 summed up the city's excitement for the start of a new baseball season. Quote, This is a day when small boys will jump out of bed early to get a peek at the weather. The blinds shall be shoved aside from many a window this morning, and if nice weather seems likely, all will be well with the future congressman. If the weather clerk furnishes rain, there will be gloom at many breakfast tables. The pride of the household will be cross and surly, 
and will likely take a kick or two at the family cat for being denied an opportunity of witnessing his favorite sport. What a hold baseball has on the American people. Unquote. Mayor Taffel threw out a new ball to start the season, and a crowd of 11,920 attended the game, many of whom had apparently left work early due to a sudden and unexplained illness. The Enquirer picked up on a peculiar tradition that had developed when baseball season opened, in that many businessmen apparently became ill during the morning, only for each to be seen later at the ball game acting, quote, anything but a sick man, period, unquote. Bookkeepers and clerks were said they have relatives who had suddenly taken ill or died, and many grandfathers seemed to die on opening day for the third or fourth time. 1901 is called double postponement. One of the worst weather systems surrounding the opening of the baseball season occurred during the week of April 14, 1901, causing two postponements of the opener due to rain, wind, and very cold weather. The scheduled April 18 game was postponed until Saturday, April 20, and it was one of the coldest openers in Cincinnati history at 35 degrees at first pitch. Only 4,800 fans witnessed the 4-2 loss to Pittsburgh, and the Enquirer reported as follows. Quote, it was the coldest baseball opening that Cincinnati has experienced in years, and 4,800 fans shivered, sneezed, and coughed for one hour and 40 minutes. After sitting still and scoring yesterday's game, one can easily imagine why people go to Alaska and are never heard of afterward by their creditors, unquote. A cartoon in the paper the next morning portrayed the Reds, quote, Klondike Wonders, unquote, playing the Packing House Pirates in a game of snowball. Suffice it to say that 1901 was one of the least memorable openers in Cincinnati history. The real story in baseball that year was the ascendance of the Western League from minor league status to the major leagues. The Western League reformed as the American League and became the primary rival to the 25-year-old National League. Now let's move on to 1902, and this is a special year because we call this the Palace of the Fans Opens. On April 17, 1902, the Enquirer headline practically shouted, Play ball! Fans Palace ready! The newly constructed Palace of the Fans was not really a palace at all, but rather a new grandstand to replace the one that had burned in May of 1900. The Reds incorporated fans into the name to show their ardent supporters that the park was renovated for them. The grandstand featured an extravagant facade with Cincinnati inscribed in large letters behind home plate. The style of the park was a blend of Greek and Roman design, complete with 22 hand-carved Corinthian columns. The unique architecture created the feeling that the fans were at a special place. 19 so-called fashion boxes in the front of the grandstand were built to accommodate the city's elite, an early precursor of luxury suites that exist today. There was even easy access from the carriage stalls below the grandstand to the fashion boxes. The grandstand itself was mammoth. It could accommodate 3,000 fans on wooden benches, and below the grandstand at field level was something called Rooter's Row, which was a rowdy, standing-room-only area for 600 to 700 more spectators. Fans in this location were so close to the action that they could converse with the players, 
and the rooter's row was strategically placed near a bar, of course, so fans could imbibe without missing any of the game. Spacious bleachers could accommodate thousands more, and the 10,000 fans who packed into the new ballpark for the season opener saw the most beautiful structure of its kind in baseball. Although league personnel referred to the ballpark as the Palace of the Fans, fans, for one reason or another, continued to call it League Park. The Palace name was rarely referenced during the nine years that the Reds played in front of the elaborate grandstand. Of course, Frank Bancroft's marketing mind was always at work, so he decided to tweak the opening day festivities by having the Reds, who were garbed in their new uniforms of white and red, board the trolley car parade at League Park at 12.30 p.m. before meeting the Chicago Colts at Fountain Square. With Weber's band leading the parade, the special train chugged over the downtown streets for an hour before returning to the ballpark. The new grandstand and the Reuters Row beneath it were freighted with humanity and every stand on the lot held its full quota, according to the Enquirer, but the Reds lost the Colts 6-1. to The Enquirer summed it up as, quote, Fortune alone frowned on the Reds and reserved all her smiles for the gray-garbed tourist from the City of Wind. Now, let's move on to the period after 1902. And it's an era in baseball that is called Peace Between the Leagues. And it ushered in a new era in opening day history with the increasing importance of tally-ho parties. 1903, we call the year of the Cincinnati Peace Treaty. Three months before the opening of the 1903 season, the rival National and American Leagues held a historic meeting at the St. Nicholas Hotel, which was located on the southeast corner of 4th and Race Streets, just southwest of Fountain Square. Herman, the new owner of the Reds, hosted the other American and National League owners, and he kept the owners at the hotel until agreements were reached on territories, rights of players, across-the-board playing rules, and non-conflicting schedules. A new governing body was formed called the National Commission, chaired by Herman, and it successfully established rules for the brand new World Series. Because of what was dubbed the Cincinnati Peace Treaty, the leagues agreed to be friendly rivals. You know, if Frank Bancroft is the father of opening day, Gary Herman is the father of the World Series. Perhaps because the treaty ended the league's rivalry, however, the Reds decided to forego the now customary downtown parade and simplify official ceremonies on opening day. The morning paper on April 16 headlined the musical festivities to take place at the Palace of the Fans or League Park, and festive decorations of bunting were strewn over the grandstand railings to commemorate the occasion. A crowd of 12,000 filled the ballpark under overcast skies. Weber's band started playing promptly at 2 o'clock p.m., and the band premiered a new march called the New Cincinnati Ball Club. The only parade that occurred was when the Reds and the Pirates marched in Indian file over the field, accompanied by what the Enquirer described as a small, short athlete garbed in a red uniform, and carrying a big mitt. The team's procession ended in front of Gary Herman's presidential box, and a great floral horseshoe, a handsome elk's pin, (laughs) and a diamond-studded watch charm were presented to three of the players. Judge Howard Ferris gave a brief welcome that subtly referenced the fact that Herman a native Cincinnatian, had purchased a team from outsider Brush. Brush lived in Indiana and owned two other major league teams. Judge Ferris stated as follows, quote, 
Gentlemen of the Cincinnati and Pittsburgh ball teams, this is indeed a great day in baseball history. Today, we realize the hope and anticipation of years. A Cincinnati club owned by Cincinnati people, polling for Cincinnati first, last, and all the time. We hope that at the end of the season, Cincinnati will be first and Pittsburgh second, and that our boys will at all times play pennant-winning ball. This is not the time for speech-making, but the time to play ball, unquote. Let's turn now to 1904, which we title, Not Much Fuss. On the morning of the opener on April 14, 1904, the Enquirer headline held grim news, quote, Sister ship of the Ohio is the victim of a terrible accident, unquote. Thirty-two men had been killed the previous day by an explosion in the handling room of the battleship Missouri. Unrelated to the accident, the paper reported, quote, there won't be much fuss and feathers about the go-off, unquote, of the baseball season, as only the pregame concert by Weber's band and an opening address by the vice mayor were on the agenda. The Reds won their first opener in five years when first baseman and manager Joe Kelly slid past home plate with the winning run in the ninth inning. The field became immediately black with cheering enthusiasts, that is, businessmen dressed in their dark suits and derbies, while many of the 13,000 in the fans surrendered to the maddening joy which marks the first victory the Reds have won on getaway day for years, unquote. It was the largest opening day crowd since 1896, despite the grim news about the Missouri and the modest pregame activities. In 1905, we call this year No Circus Parade. In advance of the Reds opener on April 14, 1905, Gary Herman announced that the season would open without elaborate ceremony because, quote, the game is a thing folks wanted to see, not a circus parade, period, unquote. The Enquirer agreed. The paper stated, quote, the game will be the feature of the day. It has been wisely decided to have no big parade or any attention distracting side issues. The gates of the park will be thrown open at one o'clock and play will be called promptly at 3.30. For an hour before the game, John Weber's celebrated military band will harmonize sound waves for the delectation of the great gathering. Unquote. Herman was either correct or lucky that nothing more special was needed as a record-setting crowd of 15,118 turned out for the opener under sunny skies with 63-degree temperatures. We all love good weather on opening day. Mayor Fleischman made a brief and pointed address that echoed the sentiments of sentiments of both Herman and the Enquirer. He said, quote, It has always struck me that the least thing the professional baseball player cares about at the opening of the season is ceremony. Neither you nor the people came here to listen to me speak. Unquote. With that said, umpire Clem, quote, marched boldly to the plate, announced the batteries, that is, the pitcher and catcher for each team, as, quote, Harper and Schley for Cincinnati, Flaherty and Pelts for Pittsburgh. And then, he yelled, play ball, in a rich, resonant voice with a Bowery accent, and the season of 1905 was on. Now we move to 1906, and we call 1906 the joy of anticipation. Jack Ryder, a noted sports reporter for the Enquirer, declared April 12, 1906, as the most glorious holiday of the year. Quote, Today's the day. 
For many weeks, the fans of eight great cities of this glorious land have been looking forward to April 12. For nearly two months, the teams which represent those great cities on the field of baseball honor have been training for the long struggle which begins this afternoon. The eyes of the baseball world, which means all of America, are turned today toward the fields on which will be fought out the opening battles of the season, unquote. Once again, there was no parade through downtown, and Bancroft had arranged for only the simplest of ceremonies, the 60-minute concert by Weber's band, that was arranged, quote, to soothe the anxious sensibilities of the waiting fans, unquote, followed by the address to the players by Mayor Edward J. Dempsey in front of his box. Now, the lack of fanfare again this year did not diminish the enthusiasm of the city's baseball fans as another record-setting crowd of 17,241 turned out for the game. The Reds' owners added a wooden upper deck to accommodate booming attendance. The palace was filled to capacity one hour before the game began, and the huge pavilions on either side of the palace were packed with spectators as well. Ropes were stretched around the outfield fence where thousands of fans chose the sunny earth for benches. Accommodating large crowds beyond the outer reaches of the field was common in those days, resulting in special ground rules for balls that were hit past the ropes. Now, after the fans had settled into their seats, Mayor Dempsey, who was a native Cincinnatian and said to be an ardent rooter for the team, declared, quote, In the name of the people of the city of Cincinnati, I now open the season. Play ball, unquote. He then joined the ranks of infamy in first pitches by hurling a wild toss that went wide of its mark and rolled unimpeded over the diamond. Now, 1907 is a really special year because this is when the parties began, the real parties. In the past, there had been elaborate ceremonies before opening day, but the fans really got into the holiday-like party mood beginning in 1907. And we call 1907 tally-ho parties replace the official parade. While the tradition of celebrating the first day of baseball season was well-established, the notion that opening day was a day for partying became firmly implanted on April 11, 1907. For decades, there had been rooters groups for fans, but the absence of an official parade opened a door for the rooters to take a more active party in planning festivities of their own. These groups began to stage their own march through downtown on the way to the ballpark. Their processions were led by tally-ho wagons filled with fans dressed in costumes and blowing noisemakers as if it were New Year's Eve. The tally-hos often carried bands that played along the way, and reliable reports indicated that the wagons stopped frequently at local watering establishments along the route. Nearly 20 rooting parties paraded through the downtown streets in tally-hos and automobiles. One such group, called Spangler's Rooters, were described as a grotesque-looking lot in all sorts of absurd costumes with poke straw hats. The horse-drawn wagons were decorated with large streaming banners. These wagons were capable of carrying anywhere between 6 and 40 people. The fans were well-equipped with megaphones, cornets, horns, and rattles, and even after the tallyhos began to arrive at the ballpark at 2 o'clock, the revelers continued their partying during pregame ceremonies and during the game itself. The crowd was so lively, the umpire's voice could seldom be heard. With cloudy skies and a 45-degree temperature, it was the smallest crowd for an opener since 1902, but it was no doubt the noisiest. The Reds rewarded the tally-ho partiers and won the game in their last at-bat. 1908, we simply call the crowd keeps growing. 
By 1908, the presence of Reuters groups had become ever more pronounced in the mix of opening day activities. Dozens of rooting parties gathered at Fountain Square to make their way to the ballpark on April 15, and large crowds enjoyed watching them have their fun. Describing the spectacle the next morning, the Enquirer summed up the pregame partying as follows. Quote, But the most spectacular mode of going to the great game was in a tally-ho with some one of the many parties of organized rooters. Four and six horse vehicles were as thick as streetcars on an ordinary afternoon. All were gaily decorated and full of excited fans, waving flags, tooting horns, singing popular songs, and cheering for everybody, including themselves. <laughs> Unquote. The rooting parties were greeted by the largest crowd in the history of the opener, 19,527, and it was the first pregame sellout in the history of the opener for the Reds. After the game, the National League president praised the city's enthusiasm for the opener, declaring that, quote, this town is one of the very best ball towns in the country, if not the best, unquote. And we all know that he would find no disagreement among Cincinnati baseball fans even today. 1909, I titled, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. April 14, 1909 was one of the most noteworthy openers in Cincinnati history, mostly because it featured the first rendition of what would become the unofficial anthem of professional baseball. While the iconic song was first sung at a Cincinnati ball game, its roots were in New York City. Songwriter, singer, and vaudeville performer Jack Norworth was riding a New York subway train in 1908. A sign on the subway read, quote, baseball today, polo grounds, unquote, and Norworth was inspired to write the now beloved song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. In the song, Katie Casey's beau invites her to a show and she accepts the invitation, but only if her date will take her out to a baseball game. According to two of the great sports writers of Cincinnati, John Arardi and Greg Rhodes, in their book, Opening Day, the pregame concert by Weber's band featured the catchy new tune. Decades later, the chorus would be adopted by every professional baseball team to be sung during the seventh inning stretch of each game. Now let's move to 1910, a year we call the lucky seventh and the 27th. The Cincinnati Traction Company, the operator of the city's vast streetcar system, placed 75 extra cars in service on April 14 in anticipation of another record crowd for the opener. All of the reserve seats had been sold in advance, and Bancroft had planned to open the gates at 12.30 p.m., but he was forced to open them at noon instead, quote, in order to pacify the howling mob outside. Unquote. And by one o'clock, quote, all the choice locations were taken, but the people continued to pour in by thousands. Unquote. Now, in this game, neither team scored a run in the first six and a half innings of the game. So the crowd stood up in what the Enquirer called the lucky seventh, pulling for a run. The lucky seventh term gave birth to the modern seventh inning stretch which takes place in the middle of the seventh inning before the home team comes up the bat. It is the moment in the game when the home team hopes to experience a string of good luck. To encourage the team's good fortunes, fans rise, sing, cheer, and otherwise root the team on. The lucky seventh was first noted to have occurred in Cincinnati during this opener, and while the good luck charm did not produce the desired results right away, the Reds managed a score in the bottom of the 10th inning to win the game one to nothing. Years later, the seventh inning stretch would become a ritual at all MLB games, including the requisite chorus of take me out to the ball game. Let's uh, move on to 1911. This one we call sad disaster. Prior to the 1911 opener, Bancroft announced a number of rule changes for the opener concerning parking, 
paying, peanuts, and posting. In a sign of the times, the parking rule stipulated that no horse-drawn vehicles would be admitted to the ballpark, and only autos would be permitted to park under the grandstand. Regarding paying, Bancroft complied with a National League directive that said boys could no longer be offered free admission to the game. Peanut vendors and other sellers were given only restricted access to the grandstand because, quote, the nuisance of waiters, candy butchers, and peanut sharks crowding in front of people and annoying them after the game starts, unquote, would no longer be tolerated. Bancroft pledged that people in the grandstand this season will be given the same protection that they get in a first-class theater. Finally, Bancroft announced that the number of each player would be posted on the scoreboard as he came to bat, matching the number given for him in the scorecard. Let's move to 1912, which we call the glorious opening of the new ballpark. Jack Ryder previewed the April 11 opening of what would later be named Redland Field. Quote, Today's the day with proper protection from the weatherman, the National League Championship season for 1912 will be sprung open this afternoon under the shadow of the most magnificent grandstand yet devised in this country for the comfort of the baseball fans. Unquote. The new park was built with concrete and steel construction at a cost of $400,000, an astronomical sum in those days. It consisted of a double-decked grandstand that extended from third base around the first base, single-decked pavilions that stretched to the outfield walls, and right-field bleachers that would later be referred to as the sun deck. Total seating capacity was 20,696. The only problem with the new ballpark? It had no name. Reds president Gary Herman refused the request from many fans to christen the field Herman Field because he said, quote, the Red Chief does not approve of naming the place after himself, unquote. After the mayor tossed a new ball to Reds pitcher Frank Smith, who took his place in the center of the diamond, Bancroft brought an innovation to the infield by having a path cut out from the pitcher's mound to home plate. The groundskeeper also designed the mound in the shape of a shamrock, another novelty. Bancroft had arranged for the construction of a wire screen also to protect the members of the press and rooters directly behind home plate. That has become common in every major league ballpark, minor league ballpark, high school ballpark. There's always a screen behind home plate. And that was Bancroft's idea. Let's move to 1913, which we will call the wettest opener on record. The third worst flood in Cincinnati history forced the 1913 opener to be delayed for two days until April 12. When the players arrived, they saw anything but the usual playing field. In order to make the field playable for the opener, the grounds crew had set bonfires the evening before to dry out the field. The fires had blazed through the entire night, resulting in a skinned, blackened diamond with no grass. Behind home plate was described as a sea of slime, and the outfield was soft and slippery. Now, despite these field conditions, but perhaps aided by the earlier start time of 2.30, that still gave fans plenty of time at the game to visit other places of amusement, presumably local drinking establishments, 20,000 spectators celebrated the opener. The Enquirer had this to say, quote, Considering the uncertainty of playing and the poor weather and ground conditions, the crowd was a hummer. Though many reserve seats were turned back at the last moment, largely by speculators, who will never be favored with blocks of tickets again, the real fans held on and would not be denied. They came in autos, wagons, in streetcars, and on the hoof. They came provided with bands, which ground out popular airs that were pleasing to the excited multitude. They came adorned with streamers and with badges. They came in costumes and they came in their working clothes, right from the shop, the bench, and the counter. Unquote. 
you know, there were no special pregame ceremonies uh, for this one either. But then Mayor Hunt surprised everyone by leaving his grandstand box and throwing a pitch from the mound. The crowd was entertained by this first in Reds history. But yet again, it was another wild pitch from a politician because Mayor Hunt's toss sailed over the batter standing at home plate. 1914, we call simply Lake Redland. There was no flood on April 14, 1914, but the conditions were worse for the fans than they had been the previous season. The Morning Enquirer announced the opener would be a battle with the spitballers, and it turned out that the hurlers had plenty of moisture to apply to their pitches. At the bleachers had already filled, a steady rain caused a delay in the game and elimination of all pregame ceremonies other than the annual concert. The field was in such bad condition and the weather forecast so ominous, the game would have been postponed had it not been opening day. The Reds decided to proceed because of, quote, the insistence of the crowd, which refused to go away, even when it rained the hardest, unquote. The rain caused such comical and sloppy play that the Reds scored six runs during the sixth and seventh innings without managing a single hit. In the sixth, they scored three runs on an error, three wild pitches, two hits batmans, a couple sacrifice fly, and a stolen base. In the seventh, they again scored three runs, this time on four walks, two sacrifices, and a wild pitch. It was only then that the drenched crowd of 15,728 began to head for the exits. Now let's go on to 1915. This is a year remembered for the manager nearly choking to death. On April 10, an up-and-coming player named Babe Ruth made his first appearance in Cincinnati while playing for the Boston Red Sox in an exhibition game. Four days later, when the Reds were scheduled to open their season, Reds fans encountered somber news when they opened their morning paper. Zeppelin Warcrafts had dropped bombs on England the previous day during the early days of World War I. But on the sports page, Jack Ryder gave the fans relief from wartime anxiety by predicting spring-like weather at last for the opening of the championship season. A large crowd of over 20,000 was expected as all, almost all of the reserve seats had been sold in advance. There were large delegations of fans arriving from Dayton and Hamilton, Ohio, Lexington, Kentucky, Indianapolis, Indiana, and cities in between. It's amazing to think of the trouble those folks went through to get the opening day in those days, traveling by horse and buggy, maybe by the new automobiles that had been introduced, but still quite a hike, hour-long drives from Dayton or Lexington, for sure. In any event, everything was in order for a perfect outing against Pittsburgh. A soloist, Minnie Hammond, joined Weber's band to stir the crowd with her vocal selections, but her voice could not be heard in the bleachers or the upper grandstand because of the hum of the large crowd. The mayor, who was joined in his box by first baseman Charlie Gold of the 1869 Red Stockings, one of the first surviving members of the famous teams, or one of the few surviving members of the famous team, made the traditional first pitch without incident. Now, here's where it became interesting. The play of the Reds was so listless that the team almost lost its new manager, Buck Herzog, during the seventh inning. And this is how the Enquirer described the event. While the Reds were at bat, Hersey was choosing away on a big ball of gum, large enough to choke an ox. As man after man went out on easy chances, the red leader became so interested and excited in pulling for something to happen that the gum got the better of him and slipped in a sneaking manner down his gullet. It lodged in the windpipe, and the crafty manager was up against it for air to breathe. 
He was choking and gasping when Dr. Hines, the club physician, arrived on the scene and extracted the offending substance. Hersey became very ill, and the game was delayed a few minutes while he was recovering, unquote. Now, the next four years, 1916 to 1919, are called patriotism at the plate because they occurred with the backdrop of World War I, which began during the summer of 1914. But the United States stayed out of the war as long as possible. By opening day of 1916, it was becoming increasingly clear that the United States would enter the turmoil. Patriotism was evident at games in 1916 and reached a fevered pitch during openers in 1917 and 1918. On April 6, 1917, the United States declared war on Germany. Traditional festivities took a backseat to public showings of support for the troops. Let's go to 1916. As the April 12 opener approached, the Battle of Verdun in France was underway with what was described as the heaviest charges ever delivered in battle. On the eve of the opener, the United States was considering warning Germany of dire consequences if ships carrying Americans were attacked. Weber's band received a standing ovation from the fans and the players during its rendition of America the Beautiful. And, after a single with the Reds trailing 7-1 in the eighth inning, the crowd of 24,607 cheered as madly as if the hit had meant the turning of the tide. But the tide did not turn for the team that had placed no higher than seventh place for three consecutive seasons. Nonetheless, the Enquirer found a silver lining, noting that the large crowd was a sign that, quote, the game is still the most popular and attractive of all outdoor sports. You know, in 1916, President Woodrow Wilson had threatened that the United States would no longer remain neutral if Germany attacked American ships. A year later, he was forced to carry out his threat after repeated attacks by Germany on U.S. ships. But any theories that preoccupation with the war would diminish interest in the national sport were quickly dispelled across the country in 1917. Indeed, in Cincinnati, the team announced that all grandstand and reserve seats had been sold for opening day and only a limited amount of pavilion, bleacher, and standing room only tickets that were not previously available would be sold on the day of the game. The Enquirer, after devoting most of its coverage that morning to the war, placed this headline on the sports page to reflect the feelings of baseball fans. In large letters, it said, quote, War, get off this page. Give baseball a chance, unquote. The traditional cartoon that had become a hallmark of opening day in the Enquirer featured references to the war and the outpouring of patriotism. April 11, 1917 marked the first ever appearance by the St. Louis Cardinals at an opener in Cincinnati. What the Cardinals saw was an immense crowd of nearly 25,000 flush with patriotic fever. Redland Field was decorated with bunting and flags, and fans had been encouraged to wear the stars and stripes. Nearly every fan dressed accordingly, and at least 10,000 flags were carried and waved by patrons throughout the festivities. A recruiting station was opened at the park after President Wilson announced plans that morning for the draft that was needed to raise a large army. It was likely the greatest showing of patriotic fever in the city's history. Now let's move on to 1918. This is called Wartime Hysteria About Germans. While the country and its allies appeared to be gaining ground in World War I by April 16, 1918, hysteria about all things German was reaching an all-time high in Cincinnati. 
Public schools could no longer teach German. The public library removed German books from its shelves. And German-sounding names of 13 streets in the city were changed. Newspapers were dominated by war news, including reports of tricks by German soldiers who would appear in front of the trenches and speak French or English to deceive the Americans. This hysteria spilled over to the pregame ceremonies on opening day. Like the year before, the crowd of nearly 19,000 waved flags and listened to military music by Weber's band and the Base Hospital Band from Camp Sheridan. But the minds of many of the fans were divided between the doings on the sunlit field below and the more strenuous battles being fought so nobly by our boys who are over there. The paper referred to the pregame ceremonies as, quote, preceding the combat, unquote, and assuming, quote, a strictly military and patriotic hue. The concert was performed with the display of a Liberty Bond banner, and the crowd stood with their heads uncovered and in silence as the bands played America and the Star Spangled Banner. Other patriotic songs included Goodbye Broadway, Hello France, Keep the Home Fires Burning, and Stars and Stripes Forever. Oh, the game? Well, Pete Schneider threw the only one-hitter in Reds' opening day history, a 3-0 victory over the Pirates, and, according to the Enquirer, quote, not one of the enemy advanced as far as third base during the entire conflict, period, unquote. It's of note here that there's never been a no-hitter on a Reds opening day. And the lone hit in 1918 came from none other than Casey Stangel, who recorded the double. The game was played in short order, concluding in one hour and 20 minutes. Now, our final year that we're going to review in this episode is 1919, and it's referred to an aerial show. The signing of the armistice on November 11, 1918, ending World War I, meant that many star players returned from the battlefield and took their place on the ball field instead. The end of the war revived interest in baseball that had been eclipsed for the past two seasons. Nearly all the reserve seats had once again been sold in advance, and more than 20,000 people were expected to view the 1919 opener. Weber's band was back for another performance, and a New York music publisher provided a dozen cabaret singers to warble ragtime for the fans. The customary speech and first pitch from the mayor were also on the agenda, but the main attraction was going to be stunts in the air by Army airplanes. In fact, one of the smaller planes was scheduled to make a landing on the field. Red's President Gary Herman had actually accepted an invitation from Major P.H. Hemphill to accompany him in one of the flights above the park, and Herman was expected to view at least partly opener from the loftiest altitude ever attained by a member of the Reds' organization. However, when the appointed hour arrived for Herman to board the military plane, he decided he would be better off riding in a vehicle that would remain on the ground. The Enquirer reported on the opener and stated that other, quote, tiresome preliminary ceremonies were wisely omitted, unquote, and, quote, seldom has there been more intense and earnest rooting than was heard in the later rounds when the Reds were struggling with all their power to come from behind and grab off the victory, period, unquote. Interestingly, the Reds had two Cuban-born players, Dolph Luke and Manuel Potato Cueto, and Luke was a winning pitcher thanks to the Reds scoring five runs after two outs in the eighth inning. The flurry of hits secured them a 6-2 win over the Cardinals. Despite this big win for the Reds in the opener, the team was not expected to compete for the championship of the National League in 1919. 
Little did anyone know on opening day that the team would finish with its first world championship, tainted as it was by the infamous Black Sox World Series gambling scandal. In that best of nine World Series, the Reds beat the Chicago White Sox five games to three. This is Randy Freaking signing off. And in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long, everybody. (laughs) ¶¶